0: Um, I've been uh, preaching for regularly for um, nearly a, pretty much a quarter of a century. Uh, Eighteen and a half of those uh, have been here. Um, and I have to say I'm still learning about preaching. I'm still learning about myself as a preacher. Uh, the thing I learned last week is never preach after a good holiday. Honestly, because a good holiday, you don't think about work at all. You can preach after a bad holiday because your mind goes back to work, because the holiday's not, you know distracting you. But I had such a good holiday the week before, and I've learned that I should not preach when I come back, so I'm sorry about that. Um, there we are. Because what I should have told you last week, I should have ended on the last verse of chapter one with a much more celebratory note, because that's where it ends. Good news is being brought, proclaiming peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. God's people, just as all of us, are laboring in a world under evil. Uh, Evil is that which displeases God, it's that which is against God, it's that which seeks to undo all the good that God has done, be that in creation, It abuses all the good things God gives us in creation, uses them for things they shouldn't be used for. But evil evil also seeks to undo all the good that God has done in redemption in the Lord Jesus and spreads lies about him and people don't see him as he truly is. And in such a world, the prospect which chapter 1 gave us of the promise that that burden of evil would be lifted from us one day that peace would come as we've prayed, well, that should have been such a relief to us that that is our hope, that we should have celebrated and I should have helped you to celebrate more at the end of chapter 1. And you'll remember that Nahum's name means comfort or compassion. So that's what we should discover by the end of his book. And uh, we saw in chapter 1 that evil has no future. At the end of um, verse, uh, sorry, in verse 8 of chapter 1, God will make an end of Nineveh. Nineveh representing world evil. They were the great world superpower of their time. They were notoriously evil as a nation. God will make an end of such evil evil has no future verse 8 verse 9 trouble will not come a second time evil will be down and it will not get back up verse 14 you will have no descendants to bear your name evil will not be able to reproduce it has no future and verse 15 no more Will the wicked invade you? He says to his people. They will be completely destroyed. Uh, Through his book, um, that is the note of the whole book. Evil has no future. Uh, At the end of chapter 2, he adds a nice note that evil will have no voice. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. All the lies will stop and truth will reign. And at the end of chapter 3, evil will have no leader. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. Evil will have no leader. Satan himself will be destroyed. Now the Lord is using his prophet and the historical moment of Assyria, which you can read about in your history books, He's using his prophet in this historical moment to teach us about himself and his response to evil in general throughout the rest of history and then finally at the end of history. And in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, The Lord reminds us that the judgment of evil, the destruction of evil, that evil will have no future, the judgment of evil and the deliverance of God's people, our deliverance from evil, they go together. So as Nineveh is preparing, because it's about to be attacked in verse 1, God, watch, brace yourselves, marshal your strength. So, verse 2, the Lord... Is restoring the splendour of his people. Because we cannot have deliverance without the destruction of evil. What kind of deliverance would that be if evil were able to rear its head again and ruin people's lives and bring conflict rather than peace? What kind of deliverance would that be? So we cannot have deliverance without the destruction of evil. Our salvation is deliverance from evil. But similarly, we cannot have the destruction of evil without deliverance happening at the same time. Why? Because God is incapable of of giving up on his people. God is incapable of giving up on his people. He's made promises. So if God is going to destroy evil, he will save his people. Do you remember verse 7 from chapter 1? The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. He is our refuge from his judgment just as he gave Noah an ark and he gave the Israelites the blood of the Passover lamb when judgment fell he delivers his people and so he has given us the Lord Jesus Christ so that when evil is destroyed on the one hand we have a shelter from that judgment The death of Jesus is Jesus being our shelter from the judgment of God. It's like he put himself in between us and the wrath of God. The wrath of God which destroys evil. He puts himself in between. And that's why he was destroyed, if you like. Done away with. So that we are sheltered. God's judgment so on the one hand we have shelter from that judgment on the other we are therefore set free and restored in the destruction of evil the Lord restores the splendor of his people and because the Lord Jesus rose again we know he has triumphed over evil for us His kingdom, having died but now risen, his kingdom is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Or to put it the other way, the complete absence of evil. We can truly pray, because of the Lord Jesus, deliver us from evil. Now very often Christians get asked, And it's probably happened to you. And why doesn't God just stop all the evil in the world? Why doesn't he just stop it? Now that is an honourable question, a right desire and a good prayer. If only God would end all the strife and bring that peace that is celebrated in the last verse of chapter 1. We have to be careful asking that question. If we're not somebody who has put our trust in the Lord Jesus, because in the same time as bringing, as the, in the same time as destroying evil, it is God's faithful people who are saved and delivered. Verses one and two together. Now, um, for someone like me, stealing illustrations is the only real way forward because I don't really think of any myself. Um, So there's a great one from the bishop three weeks ago about parachutes, do you remember? Uh, He asked the congregation, who believes in parachutes? Well, everybody believes in parachutes. And then he says, who's ever trusted a parachute? That's a lot fewer people. We all believe in parachutes but we've not all trusted a parachute and it's the same isn't it lots of people believe in God but are we trusting in God see lots of people believe in God enough to say he should do something about destroying evil it's a good thought but it's a dangerous prayer if you're not also trusting that the lord jesus christ is your shelter when evil is destroyed if you're not trusting that the lord jesus christ is god's care for you see me we may well believe in god enough to say why doesn't he sort everything out but the promises The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, the splendor of his faithful people. So, if we're only believing in God enough in that sense, we need to be careful. Asking God to sort anything, everything out. But if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can pray with all your heart, deliver us from evil. Now that's way more than a prayer for your personal circumstances, which is often how we think about that, because we individualize everything and bring it down to our level. But to pray deliver us from evil as our Lord Jesus taught us that's a prayer for the destruction of everything that's evil and for the deliverance of anyone and everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nahum truly is comfort to those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in verses 3 to 10, um, Nahum's prophetic account is given of what will happen to Nineveh. It's in the past tense, it's as though it's already happened, uh, because it is so certain. And we now know, from our vantage point later on in history, uh, that it is exactly how it did happen uh, when some people called the Medes, You might have heard of them. Uh, The Medes marched in to Nineveh in 612 BC and overwhelmed the city. So uh, Nahum is preaching before the event, but because it's so certain, he he describes it as though it has happened. And it is how it happened as we look back in history. And it's really fast-paced, these verses. Um, It portrays something of the chaos of war. Um, I thought Jill read it well, just pacily going through these verses. Because in war, it's not always clear which side is being described in these verses. The chaos of war. Is brought out there are chariots on both sides troops on both sides they're all rushing to and fro they're both interested in the same city wall one attacking it one defending it It there's a sudden attack it's unexpected it's exactly how it happened at verse 3 the medes and then the babylonians after them were famous for dressing for battle in red And you can imagine the sun glinting off their massed chariots as you look from the city wall towards them as as they begin to race towards the city of Nineveh. And so in verse 4, it dawns on the city what is happening. They're not ready. Everyone is frantically trying to get organized and chariots are herring around the city to where they should be. In verse 5, All the troops are grabbing their weapons and running to their posts, stumbling over one another as they go. Both sides are dashing to the wall. Outside, the Medes have formed this protective shield. There's only three ways you can conquer a city. You can either go over the wall on ladders, you can go underneath the wall in tunnels, or you can try and breach the wall. Well, this is the breach the wall method. You make like a tortoise shell, Over your army, and you come up to the wall, and then you breach, you literally take down the wall in front of you. Verse 6 the waters of the great river Tigris are redirected. We're in uh, modern day Iraq. Uh, The great river Tigris runs by, and that water was let out by the Medes through the existing water supply channels, but of course, it's too much water. So the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. Flashing chariots to and fro. Men stumbling over each other. This protective shield and then the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It's exactly how the Medes did it in 612 BC. Nineveh is defeated. As Nahum had already said, decreed by God, a God who is slow to anger, but Nineveh's time had come. Evil cannot reign forever. And Nineveh and its highest ideals were carried away. That's what verse 7 is about. It's decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. Nineveh's highest ideals, the gods they looked to, whatever it was they looked to for their security and in which they took pride. The idols of their culture. Well, the handmaids are those who were slaves in the idol temples. The powers that they thought would keep them safe. They're proved to be False gods. They're carried away. And as the city is overwhelmed, verse 8, with the river water, so everything of any consequence in Nineveh is washed away. Whether it's the people, stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns away. The fleeing, Whether it's all their silver or their gold, it's all plundered. Verse 10, she is pillaged, plundered, and stripped. Again, that's exactly what the Medes did. The Medes didn't want to take over the city and then run it their way. It was just a sort of uh, dash and grab raid. They dive in, they take everything And they dive out. And that's when it dawns on the Assyrians that everything is lost. Hearts melt. Knees give way. Bodies tremble. Every face grows pale. All they trusted in, all they hoped for, gone, lost. Never to come back. Well, what is there to learn from Nahum, the prophet of comfort? Well, evil cannot deliver what it promises. This is the historical event, but it's teaching us. God is teaching us about His approach to evil. Evil cannot deliver what is promised. By the end of verse 10, hearts have melted, knees have given way, there's nothing. Nineveh's gone. Well, what is it that evil does promise that it can't deliver? Well, it promises life, light, and glory. You see that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, right from the beginning, where evil first came into God's good creation. You will, you will not certainly die. Evil promises life. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Evil promises light. You'll be able to see things as they really are. And you will be like God. Evil promises glory. It's an attractive offer, isn't it? If I were to offer you life, light and glory for yourself, it's an attractive offer. And that's what evil promises. Now, 120 years earlier or so, the dates aren't precise, uh, the Ninevites knew this. 120 years before the Medes arrived, They knew this because Jonah had walked in to Nineveh and Jonah had said 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's the promise of the destruction of evil from Jonah. 40 more days Nineveh will be overthrown. But they realised when Jonah preached that their only way to life, light, and glory was to turn back to God. And so they repented back in Jonah's day. They worked out that their evil ways were not going to help them in just under six in just over six weeks' time, according to God's promise. Their evil ways were not going to deliver life, light, and glory. So they turn back to the God of life, lice, and glory. But now, 120 years later, with Nahum's prophecy, now Nahum's preaching maybe 20 years before the Medes arrive. He's preaching in advance, remember? Well, they've just not responded in the same way. They've stuck with the deceits of evil. And so God was indeed slow to anger. They'd had Nahum's warning for decades. But they didn't take heed. And so, in the end, it would become too late. Then they would discover that evil cannot deliver what it promises. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. There's no life, light or glory in verse 10. I wonder when you first heard the news that there will be a judgment day. When did you first hear that piece of news? That there will be a final judgment day. How long have you known about that? What have you done with that truth? To be told about Judgment Day is to be told that evil cannot deliver what it promises. So I wonder what you've done with that truth. I wonder if you've dismissed it. It's nothing to do with me. Makes some good Hollywood movies, but it's nothing to do with me really. You may have dismissed it. You may have misjudged it. I suppose that day is coming, but I'll be okay. That sounds oddly like the serpent, doesn't it? No, I won't surely die. That's to misjudge. You might have dismissed it. You might have misjudged it. You might have mistimed it. The Lord is slow to anger. I know that. So there's no real rush. Uh, I don't need to get ready yet. Well, Jesus tells a parable about that, to which the punchline is You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. I've dismissed it, misjudged it, mistimed it. Or you might have taken it to heart and repented and turned back to the God of light, life and glory. The Lord will restore the splendour of his faithful people. When he is busy destroying evil, he is also necessarily busy saving his people. Evil cannot deliver what it promises. Uh, Something else becomes rather obvious out of all this too. For believers, uh, those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, something becomes rather obvious straight away. This is from 2 Corinthians 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what's due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Of course we do. We know this day is coming. This is what we should do in love. For those who find themselves lost, thinking that anything other than God, thinking that anyone other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ might deliver life, light and glory. Well, they're lost and in danger. We know the real truth and the safe way and the eternal life. So it is wonderful to see how many loving invitations must have been issued in order for so many new faces to be at Christmas Cracker yesterday. There's still things on this week. Our invitations are not just for Christmas. Our invitations are for every day until the final day. Because we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Finally, verses 11 to 13. Um, perhaps a little awkward to our ears. Again, I thought Jill read this, this really well because she read it like a taunt. And it is a taunt of evil. Um, now, we tend to associate taunts with football supporters. Um, there's lots of things wrong with how football supporters taunt one another. Okay, okay but there's something right about taunting an enemy there must be something right because that's what verses 11 to 13 are and this is God's prophet there's more to come in chapter three as we'll see next week where now is the lion's den that great lion of Assyria he just went out from his nation to other nations and gathered nations and fed his own cubs with those nations. Where now is the lion's den? The one who used to go around with nothing to fear. The lion who killed enough of his cubs, strangled the prey, filled his lairs. Where is he now? The prophet taunts. Taunts. The great hunter has become the hunted. The mighty has been brought low. The one who ruled the roost, the rooster has been roasted. I thought of that one myself. Two things make this very different from the taunting that makes us uncomfortable most of the time firstly this actually matters I'm sorry if I have to say this to some of you but football doesn't matter but this does matter this is about powers that have risen up claiming to offer life, light and glory to people like you and me but it's a lie it's a deceit and it's enslavement This is about powers that have risen up to take people away from God. And God is saying, I will overcome them. This matters. It's wonderful to be able to say, where now is that lion's den? The other difference is that Nahum is not rubbing his opponent's noses in it. That's quite often what happens uh, uh, in sporting champs. He's not rubbing his opponent's noses in it. Because this taunt is ahead of time. Remember? It's at least 20 years before this actually happened. See, the taunting and satire in the Bible... That's a way of celebrating the victory before it has happened. Now that's crucial, because that gives real confidence and joy to God's faithful people. There is a victory coming, there will be something to celebrate, splendour will be restored, we will clap our hands in the end. It gives real confidence that that victory will come. But it also still acts as a warning to those who dismiss, misjudge, or mistime their knowledge of the coming judgment day. It's coming, it says to them, and here is your warning that it's coming. Heeded in Jonah's day, not heeded here but it opens up that opportunity to find the refuge of the Lord Jesus Christ before it comes. That's a very different kind of taunting. Evil cannot deliver light, life and glory. It only brings death, darkness and shame. And so there should be the greatest cheer that the Lord will stop evil in its tracks. All its lies, verse 13, all its deceptions, all its temptations will be silenced. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Evil will have no voice that day and beyond. Imagine a world where there's nothing to lead you astray. Where there's nothing to deceive your children into taking a wrong turn. Where there are no false promises and no empty hope. Where nobody's promising life but actually delivering death. We're to have confidence that this day will come We're to be warned to repent in time. If you want a New Testament version of taunting, a New Testament version of taunting evil, it's a very simple slogan. It's only three words long. It mocks the powers of evil. It assures the believer. And it warns those who have yet to turn back to God. If you want to encourage yourself in the midst of evil all around, you just need to shout, Jesus is risen. There's the great mocking of evil, the taunt. Death, darkness and shame utterly overcome. Assurance to the believer, Christ is risen. Where now is the lion's den, given that Christ is risen? Death, darkness and shame overcome. Life, light and glory for all God's people. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you that we will not have to put up with evil forever. Thank you that you will, as certainly as Assyria was overtaken by the Medes, so you will put an end to evil one day. You will make everything new. All death, darkness and shame will have gone and only life, light, and glory will remain. Father, thank you that you will do that, but thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to us, through whom you care for those who trust in you. He shelters us from your wrath and grants us new life, Filled with true hope into eternity. Father, we pray that as we hear these words of Nahum, as we hear your word to us, as we hear your warning, Father, we would turn to him in our hearts. And Father, we pray that knowing him, we might celebrate, we might clap our hands, we might rejoice that this day is coming when all evil will be done with. And so, Father, we pray that in the meantime you would help us to persuade others to come under the shelter of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might all together share in the kingdom of God, which is righteousness, joy, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.